Hey podcast and welcome back to another episode. So today I've got a really, really good guest on for you. We're speaking to Claudio Calori. Now many of you will already know him from doing the World Cup commentary and from many other things like that. You've probably seen his Danny Mac video recently, the uh, Grabundan video. So without further ado, I think we'll just dive straight into it because it doesn't need much of an intro. So Claudio Calori, enjoy. Hey podcast, so today I'm chatting with Claudio Calori who really does not need an introduction, so welcome on Claudio, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. So before I ride, I absolutely love to watch riding videos on YouTube, so I'll sit down with a coffee for 10-15 minutes and watch videos and I've seen various videos of yours to get me in the mood to ride. The most recent one is the uh, Home of Trails with Danny McCaskill, so that looked like it was great fun to film. Yeah, that was good fun, and uh, I learned a lot riding with uh, Danny too. Like you know, as a as a racer or a, let's say normal mountain biker, you you kind of learn to go around obstacles, and then if you ride right behind Danny, he de- he never goes around obstacles. He just goes <laughs> straight over them, and then uh, he kind of realized like, well, yes, why why didn't I, why didn't I ever have this idea? Why am I actually going around the rock when it can just go straight over it? So it's a different riding style. It's, it's pretty cool, actually. I bet it was nice, really, wasn't it, riding with someone from a different, completely different background? Yes, completely different. But, you know, nowadays he rides so much mountain bikes that um, like he's, he's actually, he's fast, too, on an, just a normal trail. Yeah, 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 for sure. So I'd love to start really. A lot of people know you now, they know about your racing and about obviously doing your course previews and your commentating. But what most of us probably don't know is about how it gone for you. So when did you first start mountain biking? Oh, that was like ninety-three when my parents bought me a mountain bike to actually go for hockey training because uh, they had to drive me to ice hockey training every day. And at some point they said, Hey, what about if we buy you a mountain bike and you just ride to your training so we don't have to drive you there every day. And I was like, yeah, let's get a mountain bike. Cool. <laughs> uh, but soon after that, um, mountain biking was so much more fun than actually going to hockey. Uh, that's where I gave up playing hockey and then started racing actually cross country. It wasn't even downhill. And so in the first couple of years, I did everything from cyclocross to track to road to cross country and only four years later i discovered uh that downhill is actually even more fun (laughs) what did you like about downhill over the other disciplines well the the thing what the the real story is i was on a cross-country training ride and i found that bmx track somewhere i've never seen a bmx track before and that was when i was or I think 19 and so like I did a lap on it and that was so much fun that uh, I went a couple of weeks later I went I went to buy a BMX and my parents were like what are you doing <laughs> what what are you doing with a kid's bike and, and so the, the upcoming winter I pretty much spent all my time on that BMX track 
which obviously led to the fact that I wasn't the fast climber anymore in the cross country races, but I was a really, really fast downhiller, <laughs> that, which oh, okay. then made me try out downhill. And there, there we go. And then you were probably one of the sort of like really when downhill racing just started to take off, weren't you? You were kind of in that initial surge, if you like. Well, I was kind of right at that point where you couldn't do both anymore. So at the beginning, I thought, well, let's try both cross country and downhill. But that worked till like 95 or so. And then it was definitely over uh, to where you had to specialize and to at that point there were even people still racing on the same bike you know like in 93 or so there's people doing the downhill on the same bike on saturday as they would the cross country on the sunday um but then in 96 there there was no way to do that anymore and then the decision like was done at at first i was like hesitating should I try to do both or should I try to stick with with cross country? But, you know, as soon as you're in there, there's, you, you don't think anymore. You just go for it. So how have the tracks changed over time then? So since like 95, 96, how, how much gnarlier have the tracks got? Like how have they changed over that time? Um, I would say they have become a bit more consistent now where... You don't have mile-long pedaling sections anymore. Um, yeah. There, what gnarly stuff was already there, already right okay. from the start. But there it was more punctual. And in between the gnarly stuff, you'd have like a minute of just pedaling. <laughs> <It happened, laughs> not always, not on every track. But, you know, like if you think of Nevegal back in the days, it was just as gnarly as it would be today maybe they would add a couple of bigger jumps nowadays where that wasn't necessarily in there um yes i would say it's probably more compact now where the action is right from top to bottom without necessarily a a break in between yeah for sure but they were just as gnarly back then were they it was just the bikes weren't quite as capable i would say so and you know like if if back then you had a rock garden and that's kind of like the same topic as with Danny McCaskill back there if you have a rock garden you would find your way through and make sure you have a proper line through it while nowadays some of the riders they would just like (laughs) jump into it and see what happens and hope that the bike (laughs) handles it I mean yeah I'm exaggerating obviously you still need to have a good line Yeah, yeah but you'd attack uh, Rock Garden in a way different way nowadays than we would have done it in the 90s. Yeah, got you. And I imagine, I presume the speeds have got a lot faster, have they? And they must have done really with the more capable bikes. Yes, that is definitely, definitely about the bikes. Although I do remember that one of the first downhill races in Switzerland I've done They had such a wide open grass section, really steep. And I was actually on like a five centimeter travel bike. um, (laughs) And we were going 100K down that. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) Yeah. uh, And that is ridiculously fast. And that never happens nowadays in a a downhill race, you know. So it's, uh, it's all relative, I would say. 
Yeah. So you were just more, more mental in the 90s, really. Is, is exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, how did you try and carry on? You're okay. Yeah, well, you know, obviously it happened much more often back then that you just had something breaking on your bike while you were riding. I remember Yeah. I remember that uh, at one race I I suddenly could see my my brake next to me flying through the air. Um, <laughs> and then I somehow had to try to slow down without it. Um, and stuff like that ha- happened a lot more than it does nowadays. So as bikes have kind of progressed, things like that, your brakes very rarely touch wood fall off. <laughs> um, sort of every new invention that comes into mountain biking, there's always some kind of... Um, like fight back with it so like e-bikes is a very like big topic at the moment for example i think they're getting more and more accepted but one of the counter arguments to people who are against e-bikes is that well you could say the same with suspension because you've gone from 50 mil travel to 200 mil travel and now you've got better brakes and better tires and this is almost just like an evolution of that so what are your views on technology continuing to come into mountain biking and and progressing do you think things like e-bikes are great things or do you think that mountain bikes should just continue to improve or what what you or do you think it should kind of stay more natural i've got a wasp on me apologies (laughs) (laughs) well the the e-bike topic is probably a separate one um the non-e-bikes will continue to develop and they're not going to be replaced by e-bikes yeah um, i agree but e-bikes are pretty good fun i've tried i mean i've only ridden one twice and i loved it um i see i see the the benefit of it like i live at the bottom of a mountain that goes all the way up to 3000 at a glacier um yeah and if i have to work here till it gets almost dark yeah um, and then you still want to get a quick ride in with an e-bike you could pretty much yeah. pin it all the way up to the glacier and have a ridiculously long downhill after that while with a normal bike i'll just have to do a small loop down here yeah for um, sure. so there is definitely um a benefit and but it it does, one doesn't replace the other, and it's also not like you're kind of the lazy guy with the e-bike because I found out it makes you go even harder because on a climb, if you have that extra power from the from the e-motor, it just makes you want to go faster. So at the end, yeah, you're just sure. as exhausted um, as if you go on your normal bike, but you might yeah. have had a lot more fun. Yeah, for sure. And you've climbed a lot further. So it might be a thousand feet and you goose and need a rest. But instead, you can do that 3000 feet on an e-bike and get all the way to the top. Yeah, exactly. And what about the sort of progression for mountain bikes with better suspension, better brakes, better tires, better wheels, better frames, better everything? Do you think that's a good thing and should just continue? Well, the steps are probably not going to be as big anymore as they were yeah. in the past. Um I would not see any reason why we should stop that evolution. I mean, it has brought us to where we are. And I think we all agree that the bikes nowadays are a lot better than in the 90s. They're also a lot more fun with uh, 
normal stump jumper nowadays, I can ride faster downhill than in the 90s you would have yeah. ridden with the fastest downhill bike. Um, yeah. And now this is a, a bike that I can also ride uphill with. Um, so just an all mountain bike, an all yeah, an all mountain bike is so capable nowadays. Um, it's so much fun to ride downhill, but it's also good fun to ride uphill. While yeah. maybe ten years ago, you'd you would have to choose whether you want to have a, a bike that is fun on the downhill or a bike that is fun on the on the uphill. Yeah. And now with all that evolution, you can have one bike that is fun on both. Yeah, and that's only a good thing because, like you said, more fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so moving back towards your racing, how did you transition from racing personally to then managing teams? Because you managed teams for a long time. I'll still do. Yeah, well, um, you know, like I had my highs. I was in the top 10 for a couple of years at the World Cup. Um, but that for, then for some reason, I just kept training more intensely more precisely putting more effort in had a a trainer and followed his training program by the minute um, for like every single day in the whole year and had a mental coach and had a nutritionist um maxed it all out but the results still went down and um had the family then had kids and at some point you could just not justify putting that much effort into into the sport um letting your family wait for you like the sport has always priority because you're a pro and you need to make sure that you do everything right yeah um but you know if you're if you're riding around 40th place in in the world cup then it's hard to justify all of that um not only for the family, but even for myself, it, it just somehow didn't make sense anymore. For sure. um, and at that time, I had the opportunity to, to open up uh, the team for Tomac in 2007. And then the first season was two, 2008. So I ran the Tomac team for that one year while I was still riding on it too. Um, but then I had the well, it was already a pretty good success, but uh, the brand Tomac then went down again. So uh, Scott was interested that we would run the team for them. And from then on, we we kind of went big. Nice. And then it yeah. went from there. <laughs> so what were some of the challenges of managing a mountain bike team? Then, obviously, you've done it for a lot of years. Um. Hmm. The challenges is, is really dealing with all different types of personalities and being a former racer, sometimes maybe your own ego stands in your way. You never know. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, when you see like, okay, well, I would have done it so much different in the past than these kids do it nowadays. And you're like, well, why don't you do it that way? And kids don't just don't listen because they have <laughs> their own way. And so 
you need to accept that, obviously, um, while still helping them as much as you can. Um, but then every rider puts you in front of a new challenge because every rider is so is so different. And then uh, you want to do as much as you can for them and you want to help them succeed as much as possible. But then they still have to race on their own. It's still up to them whether they're going to go fast or not. <laughs> yeah. I suppose it's a completely different role going from managing yourself and nailing your training, your nutrition, your mindset and all of that to getting the best out of other people's probably doing and managing are two very different skill sets, aren't they? Yeah. Funny enough, though, for the first couple of years, when my riders were on track, I was just as nervous as if I was on the start line myself. It, it okay. meant so much to me. I bet. Were you nervous? Were you nervous to see them get hurt? Because you kind of accept the the dangers yourself. But it must have been hard seeing, you know, the riders who are so close to you. You know the obviously the potential downsides and the risks if they do fall off. Were you ever worried about the safety? Not really, except for when Brendan did the rampage. That is when okay. I was then that is where I was was um worried, yes. But yeah. During a usual downhill race, it, it, being in that business for such a long time, it's yeah. it's just daily business. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just the norm to go down a hill at 100 kilometers an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so over your race managing career, what was one of your proudest moments of you or the team? Well, when Florian Pujan won the World Cup in Leogang, that was definitely our highlight as a team. Okay, love it. How did that feel? Like winning it myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it really is that good. Yeah, yeah, that was that was really really good. Ah, I like it. So you mentioned Red Bull Rampage there, and I was going to ask you some questions, but we may as well go into that now. So the vast majority of people listening to this will have seen it on TV, will have seen the YouTube videos, but we know that videos always flatten things out. It never looks quite as gnarly, and it looks insanely difficult on the TV. So what what's it like in person? And you've obviously ridden it yourself. Uh, yeah, well, the big challenge at Rampage is really if you're afraid of heights or not. If you're okay. afraid of heights like I am, then Rampage is not for you. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's so brutal, even just standing up at the start. So the first year I was up there, I was struggling going up there um, even without a bike. Just standing at the start was so scary for me. And I, I did not know if on the day where I was supposed to ride, if I'm actually going to be able to to even just go up there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for the last couple of nights before I knew I had to go up, I um, I hardly slept. Just like I was thinking, tomorrow I'm going to go up there and I'm not going to look left and right. I'm just going <laughs> to ignore left and right. And <laughs> when I'm up there, I'm just going to get on my bike and ride down and I had to tell myself that for for 50 hours. <laughs> um, and but I I do see riders there who have that same problem. Okay. Maybe not as not as much as me, 
Um, but then there's other riders who have absolutely no fear of height. And for them, it's just like a walk in the park. It does yeah. not matter. And so they're completely focusing on their jumps and on their tricks. And yes, those jumps are huge. And and the tricks that are doing that they are doing on on those jumps are insane. Um, but for me, that is not the scariest part at yeah. Rampage. It's really the the exposure and the height. Yeah, and it's so skinny, isn't it? Like I know when when you start that first one, you've got that first drop, and it's just the tiniest landing and just sheer drop on either side. Yes, yes, and uh, you just have to completely ignore what could happen if you miss that landing. Yeah. How how did you stay relaxed? Because obviously, when you said you were so scared, and you can hear the fear in your voice, like, and it's really your palms are sweating watching it. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can tell like it is genuinely terrifying. Yeah. But to ride it well, you need to relax. So you need to relax your arms and your legs and just ride well. How did you go from being absolutely terrified to being able to relax enough to actually ride it well? Like that's got to be tough. Yeah, that's where uh, I would say ignorance is a bliss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like you have to just commit. At some point, it's where either you do it or you don't. Um, there's not, there's no going halfway at rampage. Like yeah, once yeah. you put your foot up and you, you start riding, you should not be hesitating because that's where it gets really dangerous yeah and you didn't seem to hesitate on the start on the video especially you didn't like do like five run-ups to it and then drop in you seem to just be like right get on my bike and go is that how it was you just got up to it and then just started yeah pretty much i didn't want to go up there twice yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but you know that is kind of the same way we always did the the World Cup course previews. It's I had one go and that's it. So in that one yeah. go, I had to get those jumps done, or I or I wouldn't do them. But there's no rerun or anything. Yeah, for sure. I think most of us would str- a most of us would struggle to ride all of those courses, the World Cup courses as well. But you do it chatting as well. Like, do you, do you have to make an effort to talk on the way down, or does that just come naturally to you to talk and ride at the same time? No, it's it's the way I've done it. It, it was quite a bit of work too. I mean, I did prepare and I did think I did walk the course before I rode it and. So I knew more or less what was coming. Um, And I also had my thoughts on what I could explain at a certain point. Okay. Um, So it was kind of prepared, but you know, when then you're on the bike, it comes differently anyway. So um, I also had to react on what the guy in front of me does. but but yes, it wasn't just total unprepared freestyle. It was a bit of thinking about it too. <laughs> yeah, so at least you've got an idea of what you're going to say as you go down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So at Rampage, watching everybody all over it, what what separates kind of the best riders who win it or who do the best versus the others? I mean, you've got to be an amazing rider to just attempt it, but what separates the, the best from the rest without kind of putting down the rest in any way you mean at rampage or at the world cup uh both well at 
at the rampage i i'm not a very uh, a specialist um as much as in the in the cup. world cup because the at rampage there's all the the judging and the the tricks uh, mm. where at the at the world cup it's just the time but um there i would clearly say and you know it it's being proven at every single race it's all in your head i okay. mean all, all of those riders are amazing riders but some of them are just a little more ready in their head than others and they can perform when when the pressure is on and there is no I mean, obviously, the the best guys also have a very, very good team in their back that set their that set up their bikes exactly how it has to be for uh, for each track. And if you if you talk to those teams, it is quite insane what what uh, efforts they do to get those bikes dialed uh, in every detail for each track. Yeah. Um, but at the end, it's still the rider that needs to perform. And you could see at the World Cup final this year um, how the riders were struggling a little bit um, with all that pressure. And, and, and all of them did their mistakes that both Loic and Amori didn't do all season long. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's really really crazy how how some of the riders are extremely fast in practice and in qualifying, but then when final comes, they're not performing that well anymore. And, okay. and some others are like Amory and Lo- Loic. When it counts, they just perform. So for people like Amory and Loic, Loic, sorry, do you see any? Do they do anything differently to have that better mindset, or is it just you think it's just in them? Like, do they do something in the ten minutes before they start where they've got their, excuse me, they've got their headphones on, or they're doing something different, or or what? Well, most of the riders would go into the zone and just visualize how they ride down. I don't know exactly how Loic. And Amori do it because while they are up at the start, I'm in the commentary box. Um, so I don't know their rituals. Um, it, it's very, very individual. Some of the riders just need to chat around and, and be cool. And some of the riders need to go hide somewhere yeah. uh, behind the trees and just be alone and focus. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't know what Amori yeah, yeah. and, and Loic do. It's just more, it's a personal thing, rider to rider, everybody just does a different thing depending on what's better for them. Yeah, well, generally, most of them are quiet and mm. try to try to focus and somehow deal with with that load of pressure. Yeah, for sure. So to go on to a complete random curveball, you're a vegan, aren't you? Is that right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Bet you couldn't have guessed that next question. <laughs> so talk to me more about that. How long have you been vegan for? Why you were vegan? Uh, yeah. Well, I've been vegetarian for 22 years. Yeah. Um, and only vegan for the last nine months. Okay. Um, so I've, I've, tried to become vegan for a couple of years but being swiss and loving cheese so much um, (laughs) uh, that was quite a struggle 
so finally at the beginning of this year i i managed to to like being very consequent like very is consequent the right word there um it's probably like not you the right word exceptions you mean, you mean strict don't you yeah yeah I understand what you mean. yeah yeah um and so for the last couple of weeks or maybe even month i have gone like most people would say completely insane where you know i'm i'm really not only trying to be vegan but also be more conscious about really just buying stuff that makes sense uh, on a sustainability side so i'm not gonna buy an avocado that comes from chile or from peru or from anywhere else in the world but europe um generally i'm trying to keep it down on avocados anyway because they take so much water to grow um and if you actually think it all the way through you have to go quite extreme because there's there's a negative thing about almost everything we eat (laughs) yeah for sure it's got to stop somewhere hasn't it it's got to stop somewhere but i'm currently going quite extreme to where for the last couple of weeks i've been pretty much eating just vegetable and nuts and beans okay um and salads and the crazy thing is i've i feel so full of energy that okay um, I can almost not stick behind the computer. I, my body just <laughs> wants to go out and run. So it's, it's like the opposite of what most people would expect, where, where people would say, well, if you don't get your protein, you're going to feel tired all the time and you're going blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, why am I in such a good shape? Like I went out running two days ago because I couldn't sit in front of the computer anymore. Um, and I haven't eaten really that day. Um, just being, being working on the computer and there was, was no vegan options around anyway. So I just didn't eat anything. So normally two years ago, I would not have been able to go out and do sports if I, okay. I if I hadn't eaten before properly. But two days ago, I, I just went out. It felt like I had to go run. I had so much energy. And then I was running and I was like running so fast. I'm like, what's going on here? Why, <laughs> why am I in such a shape when actually I have no time for training at all because I spend so much time just working on the computer? So how does this work? And then I, I only went for half an hour, but I was running quite fast. I came back to the house and noticed um i'm not even breathing um it's like i just got out of my chair and and it's it's so crazy and then i just i was sent a link yesterday about a movie called the game changers okay no it's uh a movie from james cameron the guy who did avatar uh, avatar and and terminator and it's a movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger in there, and it's all about uh, plant-based food. Okay, like, nice. Okay, now now I'm curious. I haven't <laughs> watched it yet, but I've only watched the trailer, and it's it's really all about how all these athletes can perform um, on like really with plant-based food, and that's yeah. just what I 
I have been experienced in the last couple of weeks. It's just like going strict, pretty much going against anything that nutritionists would tell you. Mm. And I couldn't have done that experiment when I was a pro because I thought, okay, well, I need to always eat. I need to eat enough. I need to eat a lot. I need to get my protein, blah, 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 blah. Um, And now I can try it because I'm not an athlete anymore. Yeah. But it just made me, like, the way I feel at the moment makes me curious how would it have been if I was eating that way while I was racing, yeah. For sure. So do you have to, it sounds like you don't. Are you making a real effort to get enough protein in now that you've gone vegan? Like, are you consciously eating beans and things like that, everyday legumes, or are you just eating what you want? What's your approach to it? Um, well, it's been a process, you know, like um, when you become a vegan and you don't really have time to be a proper vegan who takes care of his food all day long, um, because I simply have to work. I cannot be taking care of, okay, what nuts do I need today and okay. what what beans and blah, blah, blah. So I just ate whatever there was. But um, that in many cases means there is nothing so yeah. if you want to be strict as i said and you you're traveling as much as i am um and you don't have the time to prepare your food for the next five days that means you end up in a french restaurant where there's simply no option <laughs> for you not even the salads arrive without meat in there um so then you have the choice of being strict or not being strict and just eat whatever there is. And I've now reached the point where I'm strict and I just say, well, if there is nothing for me as a vegan, then I'll just eat nothing. And I won't be a burden for all the people around me trying to find me something to eat. I'll just say, don't worry, don't worry. I I just don't eat anything. Pass me Um, the water. (laughs) Yeah, get me a glass of water. Um, and that takes quite a long time or took me quite a long time to get to that point. And, um, for the moment it feels really good. Maybe, maybe I die tomorrow and and then uh... (laughs) we'll quote this video. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's interesting because I had a few questions that were written down based around energy and getting enough protein and especially how you found it racing. But actually it sounds like it's the complete flip of what I was expecting because I was expecting you to have to be really like strict with your diet to get enough energy but actually it's the opposite it's just that you're eating this way and you're feeling much better because of it so yeah that's cool yes and i'm as i said it's a process you could probably not Mm. go from being a full-on carnivore yeah to to do what i do now and i wouldn't know if what i know what i do now would work if i was still working out every day full-on yeah. Although that movie, the Game Changer movie, I think is saying that, um, but I, I have no proof there. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um, all I know is that it feels super good, and it's it's a, again like racing. It's a thing in your head. It's you deciding whether 
it's good for you or not. Yeah. And and um, you know what's best for you anyway. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So you touched <laughs> on it then. How much time do you currently get to train and ride yourself then at the moment? Um, currently, I, I'm on an average of one ride per week. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nah, that's good. Do you do anything else around that or is it purely the one ride a week? It's purely that one ride a week. <laughs> okay. Ah, that's cool. Uh, that's good. Unless I'm on a, I get to go to one of our constructions and then that is pretty much like a seven day, all day long workout too. Yeah, I saw, uh, I can't remember what interview I was reading, but that, that sounded tough. So it, it's a nice segue that to get into that. So tell us about Velo Solutions, how it came about, how you started trail building and then we can get into kind of the physical side of it because some of those builds look brutal. Yeah, they are. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, the trail building is kind of a natural thing for any downhiller, I would say. Um, for me, it really started in 99 when I was spending my winters in California training. And in San Diego, we, we tried to build our own training track um, that then later on became quite a popular track for all sorts of teams to train on. Um, and from there on, I just kept building stuff, jumps, and and in 2004, with two of my friends, we've then founded Velo Solutions while I was still a racer. Okay. Um, but soon after that, my friends said, "Well, if you keep on racing, we don't want to do this alone." So they found other jobs, and we kind of um, were inactive with Velo Solutions. But then, when I quit racing, I activated it. I wanted to. I wanted those two friends to come back and and work on Velo Solutions with me, but uh, they had their pretty good jobs that they didn't want to quit anymore. So then uh, it was just me for a couple of years. And uh, in 2009, the the whole pump track thing came up. And and so before that, Velo Solutions was just a, a trail building company. Okay. not not being specialized on on pump tracks yeah um but then uh we came up with the first concrete pump track in 2009 and then in 2012 with the first asphalt pump track and that's really where where things took off crazy like we now had something that the cities could could build or could buy um, where they didn't have to have a whole maintenance crew to keep it in shape. Uh, okay, so with you know, concrete, it's very hard to keep in shape, is it, for someone who knows nothing about materials or building? No, no, the, the big difference was not from concrete to asphalt, but yeah. from dirt to something paved. Oh, so okay, be, sorry. Before us, the step before, before us, the... Uh, pump tracks were already there, but nobody paved them, whether that's concrete or asphalt, but they okay. were all dirt. And so pump tracks were popular already, but they were not really something a, a city could be interested yeah. in because it's a pile of dirt that's going to fall apart Got within yeah. two weeks. So if a city builds one, they will have to employ someone to keep it in shape. Yeah. But with 
taking it to to a paved solution, you have something that stays in place and that the city doesn't have to worry about once it's there. Yeah. Um, so the concrete was one step. Um, it was already sort of a, of a success. Um, but when we went for asphalt for the first time, we knew that we did not want to go back to anything else because the advantages of asphalt are just so so big you know like the grip and the smoothness and the all-weather um usability and and the fun you have it like once you rode on a on a on the asphalt come track you you knew that this was so much better than concrete um so yeah and from there on it it just went worldwide and it's it's still exploding it's still it's still growing and um yes we're reinventing ourselves every day trying to handle it all (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing it's great to see it become so successful i think i read somewhere is there about 100 there's probably more now but you've done about 170 pump tracks around the world is that right uh we're probably an outdated number that if if we're approaching or if we've already passed 200 now okay amazing i like it yeah (laughs) so sometimes i presume you don't build them all personally yourself now do you is that right i still do okay um but obviously trying to keep the whole thing together yeah from the headquarter as well so i can pretty much only go to special yeah. projects so either that's pump for peace projects or somewhere where the client has a special reason why he builds this pump track yeah. and um and then asks if if i can actually be on site and i still love it too i still want to be on as many constructions as possible it's yeah. just not very reasonable to leave yeah, yeah. the whole office alone um because we have really, really good construction teams now. Some of them are better than if I'm there myself. Okay. So there's not a real reason for me to to be on construction myself other than that I just really want to. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I read about one that sounded like it probably wasn't particularly enjoyable in the moment. Though Was it in New York when it was 40 degree heat? So you had the heat coming up from above and then the heat from below you from um, putting the asphalt down. That sounded brutal. Yes, and that happens in many, many projects. And Yes, there are moments on any pump track that are not that enjoyable, but <laughs> you know that saying about the comfort zone, right? It's, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's not those moments that are always in the comfort zone are not the ones you remember afterwards. So if you yeah. want to get, uh, if you want to build an, a really good pump track, you cannot stay in your comfort zone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's i forget what it is i think it's type two fun so you've got type one fun which is something that's just genuinely fun so riding a mountain bike down a hill and like just chatting to your friends doing something that's just fun you just enjoy it and then type two fun is fun that comes out of doing something that's like brutally hard and so (laughs) me and my friend last friday we did a 24-hour mountain bike ride and to raise money for alzheimer's research
research. So we just rolled round and round and round and round and round our local reservoir. We did about 136 miles, I think it was. Um, and that wasn't fun in the moment when it was raining and windy, but it's type two fun. Like it was enjoyable because you're really pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone. So you kind of, it sounds like you get a similar sort of feeling when building those pump tracks. Yes. And you know, like, once you see how it's used by the kids when you're yeah, done yeah. when you're done building it and then the kids come in hundreds of them and all of them love it then you know that every every bit of sweat you've sweated uh, during the construction <laughs> is totally worth it yeah suddenly all that pain goes away like that <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> so how did that lead into pump for peace so what is pump for peace and how did it come about um well that that's exactly um that story with the kids coming in and basically we had a project in thailand um where we went to to build that one and when we were there it kind of felt weird because we built the pump track right in the middle of a bunch of shanties so we we had a whole lot of kids around there who were looking at us they had like no shoes no nothing um clothes with holes in it um and we were thinking like okay well who are we building this pump track here for Mm. um you know is it just for some rich dudes who can actually afford the bike or will these kids here actually have a place to ride as well will they even have bikes or whatever um we had like mixed feelings uh, building Mm -hmm. that track there but like in the minute where we finished with the last bit of asphalt all of those kids came out of their shanties with Uh. whatever they had you know like some of the bikes had broken off pedals just the axle was there and the kids were riding bare feet on just the axle and they kept riding for hours and days and they wouldn't leave. I'm like, whoa, (laughs) wow. (laughs) So I asked the client, are you gonna let those kids ride here also in the future? Mm. And he said, yes, well, that's the idea. And I'm like, all right, now we're talking and, (laughs) and, this is where we knew you know like anywhere we go in the world it always has that exact same effect it doesn't matter whether we're in switzerland or in the uk or in america or somewhere in india or in thailand or in africa it's always the same the kids come out and love it and they have fun (laughs) together and that's where we thought we, we need to find a way how to do this more often so then the f- the first approach with pump for peace was just was just that uh you know like once in a while when we can afford it we should just go to a sketchy place and build a pump track okay um and then we did that that was in lesotho um lesotho is that little country in south africa okay and we had a contact there who immediately said, yes, yes, this this would be so awesome here and we could run it, which is also a factor, you know, if we just go place a pump track somewhere, 
without anybody taking care of it, then it yeah. might be completely useless. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we had a person that said he's set up to run the place and to give out bikes to the kids who want to ride. Um, and so we did it there. And again, same experience. All those kids loved it. Most of the kids live in straw huts around the track and they come out and the the, the pump track in Roma in Lesotho has become kind of the the village center. So that's wow. where people meet now and that's where after school the kids meet and, and are together and ride. And then we thought, okay, well, we need to try to multiply this and make it a model that we can reproduce as many times as possible. Yeah. And that's why we found it pound for peace as an organization okay um to uh, where we where we would try to do all sorts of different actions to raise money to to be able to build more of those tracks whether that's sometimes uh funded by ourselves or funded by concerts that we play to raise money or for example, when I quit the, the World Cup racing team, we, we then did a garage sale and, okay. and sold all the parts that we had left over from the racing team. And all that money went straight into Pump for Peace. Okay. And, and uh, whatever idea we might come up with to raise money. And uh, once we have enough, we go and build the next track. I love it. That's amazing. Do you have a goal with it? Like, do you have a certain number of pump tracks that you want to build, or is it just one more, one more, one more? Yeah, we'll just go for as many as possible. And you know, like, we're open for the industry. If any, if any brand in the industry wants to to join us, and yeah. um, anybody is welcome. We're just gonna build as many tracks as possible. Yeah, yeah, I think it's amazing. I think the especially the story behind it and seeing those kids' faces is is brilliant. Where can people listening to this donate? Um, well, pumpforpeace.com is yeah. uh, where you get most of the information, or just con- contact us at Vela Solutions. We now have one person uh, fully de- dedicated at Vela Solutions. That's just uh, in contact with all of those countries who are already waiting. For okay. their track, um, <laughs> we we have many contacts. We now just need to somehow figure out how to how to, to raise them. those funds. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, we're on it. Well, let, that's why I said at the beginning, this is our biggest passion project. Yeah. At the yeah. moment, while you know we still love every single track yeah. that we build in in anywhere in the world, but. But it's always something special if you go to a developing country. And yeah. um, yes, this is something undescribable. Well, hopefully this podcast can bring that little bit more exposure to it. And hopefully some of the people listening to this, myself included, can can get involved and help out. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so I think I've got some follower questions, which uh, I put a thing on Instagram a few days ago saying that I was going to be interviewing you and the questions came in. So I've got a few questions to ask you to finish off with, if that's all right, from my followers. All right. So first one, the completely random, what are your tattoos of? My tattoos? Um, it's, it's actually just one. 
It shows okay. from uh, from my from here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all the all the way to here. Okay, yeah. nice. Yeah, right there now. it is. Uh, well, around the back. So here on my arm, I have my son's name. On the other side, I have my daughter's name. Okay. Um, and on my back, there was somebody else's name that I had to now cover. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to replace it with my name, that's totally fine. <laughs> I like it. Nice one. Um, I'm just reading the questions next one. Okay, so this is from he's a Swiss rider. So from Swiss rider to Swiss rider, how does he go about getting in the World Cup downhill? Um, how about like the fitness and the mental side of it? So how does he go from being the rider that he is today to getting into World Cup downhill? Well, ride as much as you can and commit. You know, um, what I've done in the past is like I had the choice of getting a really good job and make shit loads of money. Um, or just go ride and race without knowing if there's going to be a lot of money. And my choice was obvious. It wasn't even a choice. It was just clear. And uh, if you feel that, then go for it and do whatever it takes. I like it. Commit to it. Yeah, commit. Like it. Um, I think I know the answer to this one, but I, have you got any plans to return to the course preview? Or was your injury, which would be the lozenge crash, was that one crash too far? No, it wasn't one crash too far. I actually wanted to get back straight away. Um, but Red Bull was reasonable enough to not let me go back <laughs> into it straight away. And um, also they they won't let me do it again. It's just for them too big of a risk, even though I think I could still do it and I would still love to do it. Yeah, um, yeah, but I totally understand that uh, for them it, it it's too much of a risk. Yeah, hopefully in future they'll change their minds. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's the best pump track that your company has created to this day? Who? <laughs> well, out of those two hundred, that's a tough one. If I if I name one, all the other teams are going to be angry. <laughs> What's one that springs to mind? Then we can get you off the hook. <laughs> the one that's what? One of your favorites, and then we can get you off the hook. It's not. It doesn't have to be the one favorite. <laughs> mm. There must be one or two that sprung up into your mind right now. Well, Colorado, Colorado in Broomfield. Okay. Um, is is a really nice one. And uh, Pretoria in South Africa is is came out pretty cool. Um, the one in Thailand I I mentioned before. Yeah. But you know there is some of them that I I haven't even visited yet because. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're building uh, seven at the same time simultaneously, wow. and, I, and I cannot be on seven each one. <laughs> I, I I just uh, get the pictures of uh, the current status, and I can give them some feedback. Um, 
that's why there might be the best one and i haven't even seen it <laughs> <laughs> yet to be revealed yet to be ridden by it <laughs> yeah <laughs> um next question have you got any advice for this person who's racing their first downhill race next month calm down <laughs> yeah that's good like it calm down yeah and that goes back to what we were saying before about rampage about relaxing and going with the flow almost yeah good tip i like it um how many bones have you broken haven't counted <laughs> i do have a couple of screws screws in my heel still but uh okay yeah yeah they just rack up <laughs> <laughs> and then the final question how do you stay motivated after a bad race Well, if you do it for the passion and for the love of the sport, the bad race is never going to slow you down. Okay. Um, because you do you do it because you love it, and um, that love for the sport, and uh, that's not gonna gonna change only because of a bad race. Yeah, I like it. That's a great answer. You do it because you love it, not for not for the results. Yeah. Love it. I mean, I, I understand that if you keep on having bad results, you're going to yeah. reconsider. Um, it's still not going to break the love for your sport. But as I said at the beginning, at some point, you will have to justify all the efforts you put in um, if you keep on getting slower and slower. Yeah. But the love for the riding stays there. Yeah. I like it. Um, so that leads me into my final question. I like everybody who I interview to finish with whatever message they want to put out there. So you can chat about whatever you want, put whatever message you are, want out to my followers. What would you like to end the podcast with? Keep on rocking in the free world. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Um, where can people follow you? Where's the best place for people to to follow you? and the instagram. company okay instagram <laughs> great yeah. and what i'll do i'll link up all the links for velo solutions for pump for peace and for your stuff like that all the links will be in the description of the podcast um, but right. i really enjoyed this claudio thanks so much for taking the time thank you and, uh, i just uh, we'll uh, found out i missed another meeting <laughs> oh sorry <laughs> well i shall let you go thank you so much thank you I hope you really enjoyed that episode podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. The one thing I would really, really appreciate if you get the time is just to leave a review of the podcast. So just rate it out of five stars and I would really, really appreciate that. It basically means that iTunes or whatever podcast provider you're on will push it up through the rankings and tell other people that it's worthwhile listening to. So if you do get a chance, please do take time to review the podcast. And other than that, I will see you next week for another episode. Thanks so much.